I'm Stuart Preston, and this is the Consciousness Podcast, where each week I have a conversation with an expert in human consciousness. This week, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Edward Kelly, and our topic was survival of consciousness after death. It was a great conversation, one which has stayed with me and has me contemplating everything from cosmic consciousness to quantum field theory to heaven and souls. Ed is currently a professor in the Division of Perceptual Studies, DOPS, at the University of Virginia. He received his PhD in Psycholinguistics and Cognitive Science from Harvard and spent the next 15 plus years working mainly in parapsychology, initially at J.B. Ryan's Institute for Parapsychology, then for 10 years to the Department of Electrical Engineering at Duke, and finally through a private research institute in Chapel Hill. You may be familiar with his books, Irreducible Mind and Beyond Physicalism. He has now returned to his central long-term research interest, the application of modern functional neuroimaging methods to intensive psychophysiological studies of psi and altered states of consciousness. Please enjoy this edition of the Consciousness Podcast with Dr. Ed Kelly. Thanks again, Ed, for for being here on the Consciousness Podcast. I I really look forward to hearing your opinions on this stuff. I'm, I'm really fascinated by the concept of survival um, and, and your take on this. So, you know, to kind of get us started here, maybe you could tell me, you know, tell us exactly what psi is, you know, especially as it relates to your experiments and studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, the word uh, psi uh, was originally introduced by uh, guys named Thales and Wiesner in about 1947. And the reason was they wanted a term that would be uh, more sort of theory neutral than the ones, the popular ones. You know, we've all heard of things like uh, extrasensory perception and so on, clairvoyance and telepathy. And those are kind of loaded up with uh, connotations that might or might not turn out to be correct in the end. So the word psi is just kind of a generic term for all the different things, so all the uh, receptive uh, phenomena like the ones I just named, and right. also psychokinesis, where uh, people are having effects on the environment without using their muscles in ordinary ways. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, and just to to get it kind of defined here, I also, you know, you're you're very confident in the the falseness of materialism. So, could you tell us a little bit about on the kind of the opposite side? What what is the notion of materialism? Mm-hmm. Well, materialism is actually, uh, in, at, at this point, a, a sort of old-fashioned term, uh, which arose together with the rise of modern science. And it was basically the idea that uh, there is a reality external to us, which is at bottom uh, consisted of physical or material stuff. Um, and uh, that basic idea uh, took very definite shape as science progressed uh, deep into the 19th century, at which point a lot of physicists thought that they basically understood everything in principle, and it was just a matter of uh, uh, finding some more significant digits for some of the constants, but everything was basically understood. And this was, of course, right right before the rise of things like uh, relativity and quantum theory. Uh, In the last century or so, materialism has been given a more sort of uh, Spartan philosophical form, and it's now usually called physicalism. Mm -hmm. And the basic idea, it's still the same idea, that reality consists at bottom of little bits of 
stuff uh, flying around in fields of force in accordance with mathematical laws, and that everything else has to come somehow from that. Uh, the idea of what the ultimate stuff is uh, keeps undergoing change. You know, it's now um, usually phrased in terms of a standard model with all the subatomic particles and so on. Uh, but the basic idea is still the same. And, of course, that has enormous consequences for us as human beings because, among other things, uh, everything in mind and consciousness has to come from that same underlying stuff. Right. And, and that's where things have really gotten sticky in the last couple of decades. I mean, there are people who, there have been people who resist these ideas from uh, the time they first were articulated. It goes, I mean, it goes back to pre, pre-Socratic philosophers, really. Um, but in the last few decades, there have been two primary sources of opposition. Uh, one comes from philosophy, where a number of prominent modern philosophers have pointed to the great difficulty of explaining the very most basic properties of consciousness in physicalist terms. Hmm. And here I'm thinking of people like Tom Nagel, uh, you know, who recently wrote a book called Mind and Cosmos, which has created great consternation in physicalist quarters. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there have been a number... Like to be a bat. Yeah, right. Right, right. That was an early paper, but he's uh, he's gone considerably further in, in this direction now. Okay. And, uh, of course, there are people like Strawson, a number of people who are pushing uh, radically different kinds of metaphysical ideas, uh, having become convinced that physicalism in its conventional form is just not going to be able to account for consciousness and its properties. Right. Uh, the other thing that's been with us really for more than a century now is uh, quantum theory. And a lot of the founders of quantum theory were adamant about the uh, inability of physics to explain consciousness, but that message somehow got lost. Um, most of what's happened with quantum theory has consisted of applications, and uh, you know, people doing that kind of work are usually told to uh, forget about metaphysics and just do their calculations, you know, so that we can have better and better uh, toys. <laughs> Right. Cell phones and TVs and God knows what else, cameras. Yeah. Um, so it's been tremendously successful in practical terms, but still remains quite mysterious in terms of its ultimate metaphysical implications. And there's a lot of controversy still about what those might be. Um, but uh, I know several um, people who are really steeped in the physics who are arguing in somewhat different ways uh, for the idea that contrary to widely held uh, beliefs among particularly non-physical scientists, you know, guys like myself, psychologists Mm -hmm. or neuroscientists and philosophers of mind, that reality is really quantum throughout and we are going to have to come to terms with the strange implications of the theory. I don't want to really talk about that very much because I'm not a physicist, and I think there are too many psychologists talking about quantum theory these days. But that's that's out there. Yeah, uh, we're, you, you we're, made me very curious and a little nervous to talk about that, so I'm glad we might uh, <laughs> avoid that or save that for later. Yeah, 
Um, I could recommend some people you might want to talk with at some point. Um, a couple I should mention right away. Uh, two two people are really well. Three people are really steeped in this stuff and who uh, uh, take it very seriously in terms of its philosophical implications. Uh, one is Henry Stapp, of course, who has a chapter in one of our books. Uh, two uh, others who have come to my attention more recently are uh, a guy named Bernardo Kastrup, K-A-S-T-R-U-P, in the Netherlands, who's a computer engineer by training. Uh, but steeped in the physics and writing books about uh, an idealistic uh, or an idealist theory of his own making. Uh, another one is a guy named Federico Fagin, F-A-G-G-I-N, who is a Ph.D. in physics from Italy, who was a major pioneer of the microelectronics industry, been living in Silicon Valley for decades, and who has had mystical experiences for decades which have convinced him that the standard physicalist story is uh, wrong and who is developing his own approach to an idealist theory. Hmm. And what both of these guys do basically is upend the current uh, priority of the physical relative to the mental and consciousness. Right. So it's uh, it's kind of a, a really big thing that's coming down the road now. Oh, excellent. Uh, uh, where... Um, I fit in and the, the kinds of work being done by uh, my colleagues here at, at DOPS is in adding a sort of uh, empirical dimension to all of this. That is, we study things uh, that are extremely hard or impossible for uh, physicalist uh, metaphysics to explain, including, for example, psi phenomena. In fact, clearly one of the main reasons for opposition to psi phenomena in the scientific community, has been uh, the recognized inability of conventional physical theory to explain them. Uh, There are a lot of people out there who are desperate to deny the evidence for these phenomena because they see the threat. Um, What is that that threat you're talking about there? Well, you know, if, if physics is incapable of explaining, if conventional physics is incapable of explaining things like clairvoyance and telepathy and psychokinesis, then those phenomena are a threat to that view and the, the metaphysics that goes with it. Yeah. And there are, there are a lot of people for whom, you know, present day uh, uh, opinion is kind of a benchmark for what can possibly be real. It's it's almost right. a kind of uh, quasi-religious faith. So a lot of people become real angry when you uh, confront them with data that doesn't fit into that preferred worldview. Right. That makes sense. So going back to uh, the work of DOPS, and you know, we can talk about whatever aspects of this you're interested in, um, our uh, primary interest is in this question of postmodern, postmodern, postmortem survival. Right. Um, and unbeknownst to many of the participants in the public debate, both pro and con, there is actually a lot of ostensible evidence for survival. It takes a number of different forms. It includes things like uh, crisis apparitions. You know, where one person is being uh, slaughtered in some fashion in one place and in a distant location, uh, his uh, spouse or uh, other uh, 
close, emotionally close uh, persons may uh, have an experience which alerts them to the fact not only that he may be dying, but also in how he is dying, the details of what's happening. That was one of the yeah, so there's uh, primary... More, there's more information there than really could be possible with just a coincidence. Right. That's the uh, the main argument. And this is one of the principal interests of the founders of the Society for Psychical Research. You know, that happened in England in uh, 1882, and by 1886, they had published a large two-volume book containing over 700 cases of this sort, which wow. they had investigated in detail and provided things like uh, uh, copies of uh, letters written at the time of the experience, affidavits about the uh, circumstances of death and so on, and working out in detail the, uh, the, uh, the difficulty of explaining these things in conventional terms. And they've continued to happen right up to the present. Uh, then there's a big body of work on what's called mediumship, in which certain people seem to have an ability to get themselves in a state in which they can uh, deliver information from a deceased person, right. which to the people receiving that information is persuasive that their loved one is still alive. And again, these were elaborate case studies, many of them carried out by the early researchers from the SPR, the Society for Psychical Research, or their associates. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the most uh, uh, distinguished people in our Western scientific tradition have been involved with this. William James, for example, discovered a medium named Mrs. Piper, who was one of the most prominent, uh, elaborately studied mediums of that early period. Uh, but there continue to be such persons even to the present time. And uh, in, I mean, there are literally thousands of pages of uh, uh, careful scientific reports about sessions with these some of these uh, mediums, right. and they, and they cannot be ignored. It, yeah, me? it can't be ignored, and it can't. Uh, you mentioned it cannot be explained in in conventional scientific terms. Um, you know, what, what is your hypothesis or your position on, on how is it explained in terms of, you know, the mind and the consciousness? I mean, do you have theories you guys are working on or, or trying to test or, you know, what what do you guys think about it? Well, it is a very big, complicated subject, and we could spend uh, many of these sessions just, just talking yeah. about mediumship, let alone everything else. Right. Um I don't have any clear picture of how it works. Uh, I can tell you sort of a bit about my personal journey through all this and, yeah. and where it leads me to be at the moment about survival. Um, I was in graduate school and a very conventional graduate student, uh, just kind of absorbed the prevailing physicalist view. That's because that's, it was the atmosphere we grew up in. Right. Uh, but late in graduate school, uh, my older sister... Uh, became a medium, and my mother called me to tell me about this one day, uh, apparently thinking I would know all about it and could reassure her that she didn't have to be worried about it. Um, I didn't have the slightest idea what she was talking about, but I promised to go find out, and I did. Uh, and I quickly convinced myself that there was no terrible danger here to my sister, so I could reassure my mother. Also discovered to my amazement uh, all this... Uh, serious 
um, academic uh, research on the paranormal, including not only case studies of the kind we've already discussed a little bit, but also experimental studies of the kind I was being you know, trained to do in graduate school. Uh, there were whole uh, shelves of uh, the Journal of Parapsychology containing experimental reports, reporting things being found out that I could quickly see uh, were going to be trouble for the uh, mainstream view, but you know, seemed to be uh, being generated in the course of research that was perfectly conventional in terms of the methods that were being used, just the same kind right. of stuff I was learning. Right. So I became interested in it, and uh, as it happened, uh, I was working on computer understanding of natural language uh, for my dissertation. Got very disillusioned about that late in the piece. Was floundering around trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And when I developed this new interest in this paranormal stuff, so I ended up going to work for J.B. Ryan down in uh, Durham. And within a month, I encountered a guy who uh, could do virtually any psi-type task we gave him to do, who convinced me within days that these phenomena were real. I mean, any residual doubts I had after reading a bunch of experimental reports were just wiped away by my initial encounter with this person. Yeah, because that was so, your first person. You're sitting there with this guy and doing yeah. these experiments and seeing yeah. them for yourself. Yes, right wow. up front. Wow. So that shattered uh, my worldview, basically, but didn't uh, didn't uh, provide anything to replace it with. I just had this big kind of round brick in my carefully right. constructed wall, <laughs> metaphysical wall. Right, right. Anyway, so uh, uh, I went on doing that kind of work for uh, oh, about uh, 14 or 15 years. Then I uh, had to put food on the table for uh, two kids I had with my first wife. Uh, went back to work, uh, back to uh, conventional research in neuroscience at UNC Chapel Hill. Learned a good bit of neuroscience there. Uh, but then eventually um, uh, got hooked up with a uh, woman who had been working with uh, Ian Stevenson since the 1970s. This was uh, Emily, my wife now, Emily, Emily right. Kelly, formerly Emily mm -hmm. Cook or Emily Williams. Um, and she had been uh, Ian's kind of right-hand person for uh, a number of years helping him. Ian, uh, for anybody who's listening who doesn't know about this, Ian is the major pioneer in the 20th century of research on what we call cases of the reincarnation type, mm -hmm. which involve little kids who begin to speak and act, often at a, as soon as they can speak at all, uh, about uh, events in a previous life, mm -hmm. uh, often, often about the uh, circumstances of their death. And these are things which typically have happened recently enough that investigators can go to the places if a place can be identified and begin to uh, determine whether a child's statements can be verified by people now living or records that can be found. So Ian pioneered this line of work, and he and his colleagues, uh, by the time he died, had uh, found on the order of 2,500 such cases uh, wow. many of which they documented in enormous detail. Uh, Ian's successor here at DOPS and now are the chief of our research division is Jim Tucker, and he's got two recent books, especially Return to Life, which has uh, several good American cases of this type containing lots and lots of detail 
And these uh, avoid problems to do with things like interpreters, foreign languages, uh, things of that sort. So cases arising in the U.S., despite the uh, uh, general either disinterest or disbelief in reincarnation as a possibility in the U.S. In fact, one of the interesting features of the U.S. cases is that the parents typically start out being very resistant to the idea and wonder what's going on with their kid, you know, and it can be right. terribly disruptive to the family. Right. But yeah, as more and more stuff emerges and some of it can be verified, you know, they've changed their opinions. And Jim wow. has a good description of several such cases. One of them has actually been made into a, uh, uh, well, another book has been written about this, the case of James Leininger, who was a little kid who started having nightmares when he was like 18 months or two years old, wow. uh, talking about being shot down, ended up uh, producing lots of uh, verifiable details about uh, the life of a guy who was in fact shot down over uh, uh, Iwo Jima. Uh, wow. Turned out to be the only person shot down during that combat, and uh, uh, this little kid had identified the the name of the ship, basically, and the kind of airplanes that he had flown, and the name of a guy who was a wingman on the day that he was shot down, and. Uh, Turned out he, he well, you should really uh, read the book to to yeah. get the uh, the real nitty gritty of it. So that's another yeah, will, big line of big line of uh, research that's really uh, particularly associated with with DOPS. Okay, there's one more big line of research associated with DOPS, uh, and I know you want to talk about this. This has to do with near death experiences. Um, right. Bruce Grayson in our division is uh, probably the world's leading researcher in this area. He's collected over a thousand cases himself and has, you know, big files with uh, lots of uh, questionnaires and things that uh, uh, people having these experiences have filled out for him. Um, now, well, typically these things happen uh, under conditions where. Uh, uh, people's lives are at least threatened. Um, it's important to realize, though, that it's not just in cases of, like, uh, car accidents or some horrible physical illness, but it can also happen under circumstances where people are entirely intact, although seriously threatened. For example, uh, climbs, climbers, alpine climbers who fall, and expect to die, but uh, end up in a snowbank instead and survive it, but have an experience on the way down. So on the way down, they have a near-death experience. Yeah, in a matter of seconds. Often, I mean, what these really amount to, uh, I'm not sure Bruce would agree with this characterization, but to me they appear to be deep, deep near-death experiences are essentially mystical experiences had under less than optimal circumstances. Uh, they're very much like experiences that have been reported from time immemorial. Uh, they happen spontaneously. They, they're still happening. I mean, I have in my files a number of cases involving people who have written to me knowing about my interest in mystical experiences. And they've had them, you know, while riding a train or listening to a symphony or, you know, just walking along a beach somewhere or sometimes under conditions of duress but not immediate threat to their lives. Um, but in, but in some cases, no threat or duress. Correct. 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, a, a typical example of this type was reported to me by a guy in England who uh, about 50 years ago, uh, he was in great distress. I mean, he, uh, his girlfriend had just dumped him. He didn't know what he wanted to do for a career. He's quite miserable, feeling that he has no future. He gets on a train to go up to the Lake District, you know, to encounter some beauty in, in hopes that would make him feel better. Well, the train crossed a small river, and in the seconds that it took for his car to pass over that river, he had a profound mystical experience, which utterly transformed his his life. It had such an enormous impact on him. And this is characteristic also of these near-death experiences. In fact, Bruce can really wax eloquent about this because he is a practicing psychiatrist who typically spends uh, months, if not years, trying to help people to make tiny, incremental, positive changes in their lives. Uh, And yet, now here, people have these near-death experiences, and in a matter of seconds or minutes, their lives are transformed in ways that go far beyond the kind of changes that he, as a practicing psychiatrist, can normally make. Uh, they often lose their fear of death. They become much more loving and uh, positive about life, uh, much more altruistic, much less concerned with things like status and money and blah, 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 all that. Right. Uh, so uh, he... Yeah, my my wife has been reading, as I mentioned to you, you know, when we were communicating before this, we lost our son just, just yes. under two years ago. Mm-hmm. And my wife has been doing a lot of reading into near-death experiences and it's so I, I hear I guess third hand about these and like you're saying that people pass into the the other side or they see things and they seem to have these just amazing you know like you said transformations of mm-hmm. of themselves and the things that they see and the things that they understand I mean she mentioned the famous movie critic um Siskel and Ebert well I think maybe it was uh Ebert? I don't want I don't want to get it wrong, but you know, woke up mm-hmm. from a near death experience and said it's all a big ruse or something like that. Uh-huh. You know, and it's just really interesting to hear all those accounts of, like you said, people just making incredible changes. I, it might might even make you know you guys uh, maybe a little frustrated with your own work that you're doing to say, Louis, <laughs> we spend all this time trying to help people make small changes, and you know, maybe I should just knock them over the head. <laughs> yeah, well, of course, you might kill them accidentally, so that, that's the problem. Yeah, there. you don't want that. Yeah, we'd like to have the experience without having to come so close to being dead. Right, right. Yeah. Um, well, uh, you know, and Bruce has about a thousand of these. I forget whether wow. I mentioned that or not. And he is currently writing a book, which I think will be uh, an extremely important book because it'll be uh, intended for a large audience, but it'll be scrupulously uh, careful about the scientific aspects of right. the subject. So that should be out by next year sometime, we hope. Um, nice. But there's there's one aspect of Bruce's work that's uh, especially important for me and uh, mm-hmm. uh, had a big impact on... on uh, my own attitude toward the whole survival issue. Um, And let me say by way of background that, uh, uh, well, let's go back to mediumship for a moment. Um, Okay. The the whole history of that subject um, has uh, carried us to a kind of uh, um, 
there's sort of an equivocation. Uh, practically everybody who has seriously looked at this literature is convinced that something paranormal is going on. Uh, where the hang-up is, is in whether there's enough evidence there to be persuasive of uh, survival. Uh, everybody agrees that uh, there's, everybody who studies this sub subject seriously and with an open right. mind agrees that there's something, something paranormal is happening there, and either it's survival or it's some kind of um, interactions, Psy-type interactions among entirely among living persons. Uh, to illustrate what I mean, let's say a, a medium uh, purports to be in contact with your deceased son, and let's say that the medium produces uh, statements, uh, maybe even things like uh, flashes of his character, his characteristic uh, vocabulary, diction, sense of humor, uh, specific events known only to you and him. Uh, it can be very convincing, but uh, does that prove that he's still there? Well, the, the the hitch is, and many people have pointed this out since the very beginnings of the subject, maybe the medium uh, has unusual psi powers and can somehow uh, fish up from you, your wife, maybe friends, uh, public documents yeah. of some sort, videos, information that she can then use to sort of uh, reenact your son's personality and some kind of uh, uh, histrionic capability that lurks in her subconscious that puts all this information together and impersonates him in a convincing way. Right. And that argument it turns out to be very hard to uh, overthrow. So a lot of people are still hung up. Even people who are equally well informed with the history of the evidence find it impossible to be convinced one way or the other, which is right. Um, now, either horn of that dilemma is fatal to physicalism, I must point out, right. which is why conventional physicalists are hostile to both. <laughs> right. Now, I myself, uh, I mean, I became aware pretty early on in my career in parapsychology that this uh, argument was ongoing, had a long and illustrious history, and had become somewhat familiar with the research, not too too familiar. Uh, but in the process of writing Irreducible Mind, I really immersed myself in it to a much greater degree and began to feel the force of the evidence for survival. And what really has pushed me over the edge, personally, is uh, the process of writing Irreducible Mind. Because the main thrust of that book, and it really comes out particularly in, uh, in in chapter nine, the final chapter, in fact, the second half of that chapter, is um, looking back over the whole exercise and the whole history of uh, the work that it represents. Uh, I became convinced that William James had been correct when way back in uh, basically 1898, he argued uh, more or less as follows. He said, yes, we have to uh, agree with the physiologist. There clearly is uh, an important correlation between mental events and physical ones. 
we all know, for example, that if you get whacked on the head or drink too much or take a psychoactive substance, your your mental experience changes in ways that seems to be produced by physical stuff. Right. Well, you might say, look, I uh, I decide to raise my arm, the damn thing goes up in the air. Isn't that an example of mental causation of something physical? Well, the physicalist answer to that, you see, is to say um, you got the causality wrong here because really what's happening is that your mental experience of an intention to raise your arm is really nothing but a pattern of physical activity in your brain. Hence, right. physical causes physical, no problem. Right. Well, the, the way to um, attack that picture, and it's very hard to attack, there's plenty of evidence that seems consistent with it, is to systematically identify things that brain processes alone cannot do. And okay. those include not only psi phenomena, as we've talked about before, but a whole lot of other things that are actually uh, in the biomedical literature. And that's what we had attempted to do in uh, Irreducible Mind, is to collect a large amount of evidence of that sort in one place, because it's scattered all over this vast biomedical literature. This is mostly right. out of refereed journals. So we put together stuff about, for example, extreme psychophysical influence even including things like stigmata, where a person's uh, vivid imagining of the crucifixion um, mm -hmm. somehow causes the person to reproduce on his or her own body um, simulacra, so to speak, of the wounds of Christ. Uh, there are cases involving uh, blisters produced in deep hypnosis in people who are able to imagine that circumstance so vividly that they create the same kind of uh, injuries to their own skin that would have been produced by touching it with a red-hot poker, let's say, of a specific geometric shape. Uh, there are even uh, a number of cases in the literature in which the effect occurs not on a person's own body, but on another body. And in particular, I'm thinking here of things called maternal impressions, where uh, pregnant women, typically in the first trimester, encounter some horrible state of affairs. Uh, somebody's had an accident or something. Right. Uh, becomes emotionally very preoccupied with it, and lo and behold, the child is born then with a corresponding injury. And they're on the order of 100 such cases in the biomedical literature. Um, Has anybody been able to explain that in a physical sense? Or no, and in fact... completely unexplainable? Um, we argue in Chapter 3 of Irreducible Mind that some of these phenomena are, in principle, unexplainable because the brain does not have uh, output capacity sufficient to account for the phenomena that are observed. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, so nothing, there's no physical yeah. connection from a, a brain to a baby. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, we have chapters on things like... Um, uh, secondary personalities, um, mm -hmm. and a big chapter on memory, which is probably the hardest chapter in the book, written by a guy who spent his whole life basically wallowing in that area, Alan Gold. But what I want to uh, concentrate on here, because it brings us back to DOPS, is 
near-death experiences. And the reason is that a sizable chunk, proportion of all such cases occur under conditions which contemporary neuroscience would say should preclude there being any experience at all, let alone the most important experience somebody ever had. You're talking and about it, the condition of the brain and the condition of the body. Yes, right. That In particular, conditions, nothing should be happening at all. Right. These include deep general anesthesia and or cardiac arrest. I mean, the whole point of general anesthesia, of course, is to prevent you from having experiences while they're right. working on right. you. And normally they're very successful at that, and they, there, there are tremendous uh, legal and moral pressures to make sure that's the way it happens. Right. And yet, there are uh, several hundred cases in Bruce's collection in which near-death experiences occurred under general, anesthesia, under general anesthesia, which appeared to be adequate in terms of the medical side of things. Uh, sometimes anesthesia includes cardiac arrest. And cardiac arrest is an absolutely brutal physiological event which interrupts blood flow to the brain. Uh, within 10 or 20 seconds, your EEG disappears. Um, neuroscience has reached a very strong consensus to the effect that a brain capable of supporting consciousness must be capable of supporting high-frequency EEG rhythms that can be connected across large parts of the brain. These are thought to be the sort of carriers of the information that gets integrated into the experience, any kind right. of everyday experience of the surrounding world. And yet those conditions have been abolished by general anesthesia and or cardiac arrest. And yet people are reporting experiences which are tremendous uh, experiences far more impressive than everyday experience. Right, and experiences that they're very aware of. Yes. There have even been a few cases involving people who have been operated on more than once and who have had both kinds of experiences, that is, waking up when you shouldn't wake up and experiencing terror and pain. Right. And in the other case, having a near-death experience, which, as they typically are, was uh, blissful. There, there are occasionally horrifying ones as well. I don't want to ignore that, but they're a relative minority, uh, something on the order of 10% or something like that. Um, it, usually, near-death experiences are regarded by those who have them as tremendously positive events with all kinds of transformative consequences for them. Um, anyway, um, the, the point here is really... Oh, uh, I should say one more thing about it. Uh, the, the big uh, defense uh, among physicalists is to say, well, the experience didn't really happen when the person reports it happening. It happened when either as they were going to sleep, you know, during the surgery or waking right. up from it. And the the uh, the response to that is that they report things that were happening during the time of apparent unconsciousness. Now, people who are really determined will... Uh, go to almost any length to uh, try to circumvent that argument, uh, but I personally think it, it, those, those attempts fail. 
there's a long story there, and we can't really go into all of that. But uh, anyway, the point is that these kinds of experiences are emerging right from the heart of contemporary biomedical science. And we're getting better and better at retrieving people from the borderlands of death. So I think you can be absolutely certain we're going to see more and more dramatic cases of this sort as time goes by. Um, you probably heard about uh, Eben Alexander and uh, yep. okay, and uh, um, um, Anita Morjani. Have you come across that one? No, no, I have not. Uh, that's a that's a really good case. I forget the name of her book. Her it's M O O R J A N I. She's a woman living uh, in the Far East somewhere who had a, a really fantastic near death experience uh, after her doctors had basically declared her at death's door and expected her to die. She was dying of a uh, like stage four um, lymphoma of some sort, filled with tumors. Uh, she not only survived, but the tumors vanished over the next couple of weeks. So there was a sort of in, inexplicable healing aspect to her case as well. And she's a yeah. very down-to-earth kind of person. So that's a great case, and I'm sure we're going to have more of those. Are, are they doing so, anything that you know of to kind of get in an emergency room situation? I don't think they could, but is there anything being done just by the course of the advancement of technology that would help us um, record what's going on with the body and the timings of this? And are they already well, looking at things like the EEG so they already know, like they already have no. a decent picture? The more that things are going on, the more that is happening, the more we bring people back from the brink. Is there anything that's been put in place to kind of record it? It hasn't happened yet, but I feel sure that it's it's bound to happen eventually. Yeah. You know, uh, normally people are in these kind of terminal states. You know, doctors understandably are interested only in trying to keep the patient going, not in not in doing science. You know, so uh, it's going to have to be a rare combination of circumstances when we'll get that kind of information. But I think we certainly will sooner or later. Okay. But yeah, uh, yeah, we have so. we have a very good idea about what's going on physiologically, like in connection with uh, cardiac arrest, because it's been studied extensively, not only in humans, but in animals. Uh, so we know a great deal about the consequences of cardiac arrest right? and their, and their implications for what people should or should not experience. Anyway, um, we had uh, there are a couple of other chapters in uh, Irreducible Mind. One devoted to genius, and one to mystical experiences. Uh, and uh, I guess I would only say about that that one of my personal conclusions from the whole exercise was that we haven't paid enough attention to mystical experiences. You know, they a lot of scientists are terrified of anything that seems to go into territory associated right. with religion, and of course, mystical experiences have that history. Mm -hmm. uh, so, in the scientific world, they've largely been uh, either ignored or pathologized, and I personally have come to believe that that's a huge mistake because I think mystical experiences uh, are intimately connected with things like psi phenomena. Uh, and are trying to tell us important things about the ultimate nature of reality. Uh, but that's a kind of long kind of story thing? into itself. Uh, well, the second book, Beyond Physicalism, really deals mm -hmm. with this uh, in much more detail. Uh, 
So if anybody's interested in pursuing that, that would be the place to go. Right. Uh, Paul Marshall, one of our uh, my co-editors of Beyond Physical, is, has a um, lifelong academic interest in mystical experience, deriving from personal mystical experiences of his own. And wow. he's also also a guy who's very well grounded in physical science, so he's a particularly, I think, eloquent voice in that area. So I right. direct uh, people to those chapters. But let me get back to the, uh, I didn't quite uh, get to the thing I needed to get to about Irreducible okay. Mind and its impact for me on the survival question. Um, you remember I mentioned earlier William James had uh, acknowledged that uh, there's a strong correlation between the mental and the physical, and it's right. clear that a lot of times that seems to involve influences from the physical to the mental. But James pointed out that, uh, gee, we all have powerful experiences that seem to suggest influences of the mental on the physical. And he went on to argue that... Um, you could interpret the correlation in a way different from the way it has been interpreted conventionally by physicalist scientists. That is, maybe the brain is not uh, producing, manufacturing conscious experience, but uh, conditioning its expression. That is, the mind, the conscious mind and the brain uh, would exist as mutually irreducible things that, uh, under normal circumstances, work together to produce our everyday experience. Hmm. James argued, I think very convincingly, that that view of things is no more problematic than the conventional view, because nobody has the slightest idea how to explain how right. brain processes can manufacture consciousness. And in addition, that alternative view, which he called the transmission or permission theory, uh, it's, it's acquired the name filter theory in more recent decades by analogy with things like radios and TVs, right. uh, could potentially explain a whole lot of other things that appear unexplainable in conventional terms. And as a result of putting this book together, I became convinced that that picture, which uh, James and F.W.H. Myers, you know, the uh, guy who wrote uh, Human Personality and Its Survival of Death, uh, had advanced at the end of the 19th century, uh, the subsequent century of work on relevant topics has actually made the case for that kind of a picture much stronger than it was at the time they first advanced it. And it has essentially become my working view of the connection between mind and brain. Uh, I, I should add that uh, uh, I, I regard that now as just kind of a halfway point toward what the probable real truth of the matter is, which is some kind of idealism. Uh, but we're all sort of so ingrained in the physicalist view. You know, we think of a brain as a physical object like a table or a chair you know, right. made up of, made up of uh, ultimate particles and all that. Uh, but... I think uh, ultimately we'll be driven to the more radical sort of idealist metaphysics. But for the meantime, uh, that kind of a picture is consistent with all the work going on now in things like uh, neuropsychology and cognitive neuroscience. I'm not aware of any uh, facts being generated 
in that mainstream scientific world that are necessarily in conflict with this alternative interpretation. And once you see the mind-brain relationship in that way, the possibility of survival is suddenly uh, radically upgraded. I mean, right. you know, if mind and brain are not identical, then the annihilation of the brain does not automatically entail the annihilation of the mind. And all the evidence that we have for the continuation of mind and personality becomes, uh, for me, uh, much more uh, convincing as arguments for survival. So the whole theoretical landscape changes. Yeah. I'm sorry? Yeah. And and that model you talk about, is that that something as simple as the duality of mind and and brain? Or is there something more to it you do want to share with us? Well, I I think we're all sort of naturally dualists if we don't listen to uh, contemporary philosophers. I mean, we experience ourselves that way. Right. Um, uh, and, of course, Descartes enshrined that in a sort of metaphysical system in which mind and body were separate substances, you know, a term carried over from Aristotle, basically, and has all kinds of special meanings in the world of philosophy. Um, I think we'll eventually get beyond that in terms of the appropriate kind of metaphysical picture, but it's awfully uh uh, comfortable and convenient for me to sort of think in those dualistic t- terms as, as I go about my everyday business. You know, we have a lab here at DOPS in which we're attempting to study physiological correlates of things like altered states of consciousness and psi phenomena. And it's uh, awfully easy for me, even though I've struggled to uh, reach a kind of idealist philosophical perspective. I just lapse back into dualism at the slightest provocation. It's just a nat- natural place for me to conduct my everyday business, anyhow. Um, yeah, but and it if does you, seem to. I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. If you uh, look up uh, people like uh, Bernardo Castrup and Federico Fagin, you'll see uh, mm-hmm. uh, well-grounded physical scientists who are struggling mightily to uh, put forward compelling idealist uh, views in which consciousness is basically all there is. There's some kind of a cosmic consciousness at the base of everything that somehow elaborates itself into us as individuals with our individual perspectives on what's there and a sense that we share a kind of common world that can be pretty well described in conventional physicalist terms for the most part. So they're trying to explain all that in idealist terms. <laughs> yeah, whether either of them like, is, it, and it does seem like that kind of connects a lot of the side phenomena you're talking about, from, um, you know, the apparition to the the mediums, um, near death experiences. I mean, it almost the 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 cosmic consciousness, the the brain as a filter. You know, all of that does seem to kind of Almost, not fully explained, but really play nicely into the different side phenomena that you've been talking about. Well, I agree with that, and uh, I can't pretend that we've really worked out the details in any uh, to any satisfactory state. Right. But uh, I, like William James, I kind of smell that in uh, in that direction lies the truth, and 
a number of people are now trying to work out those details, and we'll see, you know, how, exactly how it's going to play out over time. That's my suspicion of where it's all headed. Uh, I tried to work that out to the best of my ability in Chapter 14 of Beyond Physicalism, and we've gone a little bit further since then, but uh, uh, these are tough things. I mean, Beyond Physicalism, you know, is a book that's, well, it's much further from my customary habitat. The problems are much harder. Uh, Irreducible Mind was basically a gigantic clerical job trying to pull together all this stuff from scattered parts right. of the biomedical literature. But this uh, Beyond Physicalism is much more about concepts and philosophy and so on. Much intrinsically harder stuff. Yeah, that we're connected to something bigger. I mean, what are your what are your thoughts on what this what this bigger thing is? Do you have any notions or ideas or fantasies um, about what what this bigger mind is? Yeah, and they go pretty much toward uh, traditional um, uh, systems like uh, Advaita Vedanta, I think, uh, and it's sort of um, 11th century extension in Kashmiri Shaivism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just feel a lot of a lot of natural resonance toward the kind of picture that they developed there, and I'd say it's very much in the same territory as these new idealistic idealist systems that people like Bernardo and Federico Fagin are trying to work out uh, based on contemporary science. I mean, real emerging contemporary science, quantum physics, and so on. Right. So I think there is uh, there, there's uh, there's a convergence from really radically different perspectives toward uh, um, something that we we can't yet see and with great clarity, but it's sort of emerging from the mist little by little, and I think brings together the best in contemporary science and our world spiritual traditions. Um, yeah. I've made my own attempt to uh, kind of write a uh, a little vision statement, two or three pages long, and I can send that to you if you like. Yeah, I would love to see that. Um, you know, I did it anonymously. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess <laughs> being a little well, you, uh, you, faint-hearted. You let me know how anonymous <laughs> you want to keep it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I actually you want I, to keep I, it I, completely anonymous. Just don't even <laughs> send it to me. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, I've uh, I've just amended it slightly and sent it to Bernard, Bernardo Castrop to use as an afterword for his latest book. Nice. Uh, I'll send it to you in that form. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, because it does. Uh, you know, it's uh, and, and I always hate to to delve into something that I don't know a whole lot about at risk of sounding like a um, fantastic, like a sci-fi kind of a thing. But you see, in quantum physics which I studied a little bit in college, um, going to the field theory of, as opposed to, yeah. you know, particle versus wave. Now they're talking in fields yeah. and there's something that does kind of feel, you know, as I talk to you and, and explore consciousness, I am not, I'm not trying to explain off consciousness with field theory by any chance, but there does seem to be mm-hmm. at least a sense that there's, there's something the two kind of support each other and it might just be a total coincidence. But the more I hear you talk about some of these kind of things, cosmic consciousness, something bigger that we're connected into it. And the fact that a particle almost exists everywhere. I find those two notions, you know, interesting. Well, you'll be interested in Bernardo and uh, Federico then because they're both pushing in that direction, basically. 
Oh, wonderful. Yeah, I'll take a look at those for sure. Yeah. Uh, I'll send you one of uh, Bernardo's recent papers where he, he basically says, you know, what I'm saying is not really very different from the quantum field, uh, but I attach consciousness to that underlying something. Yeah. Wow, interesting. Um, yeah, I definitely look forward to seeing that. Let me see. Is there anything I skipped over? I mean, I guess uh, in my talking about consciousness, you know, I tend to I tend to ask a, you know three common questions whenever I whether it's we're talking about music, um, you know, or psi phenomena or psychedelics is in consciousness. You've already answered. You know, we've addressed the the, the mind brain duality. Um, but what about the self? Do you have any thoughts on what what the self is when we talk about being able, you know, I think, therefore I am, you know, what, what is the I? Have you explored any of the notions of the self? Do you have any thoughts on oh, that? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. This, of course, is, again, a huge subject. Right. Um, we, we all have this experience, and William James was eloquent in describing it, of being at the center of a sort of field of view, a kind of subjective point of view. Right. Um, James... Uh, uh, ultimately traced that sense into what Frederick Myers called the subliminal self, capital S, capital S, mm-hmm. which was, uh, from his point of view, a larger self which encompasses the everyday self but goes way beyond it in terms of its anchoring deeper in reality and so on. Uh, and it was really the central purpose of irreducible mind to... Um, um, articulate and justify that picture of the human psyche. Now, Myers was clear about the idea that it was this subliminal self, the larger self, that survives, mm-hmm. not not the everyday self per se. James went on in his later work to point out that uh, the subliminal self itself could have a larger environment extending all the way to some sort of a cosmic consciousness. And that's the picture that we develop in Beyond Physicalism, particularly in chapters 14 and 15. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, the subliminal self is kind of a... I have to be very careful here because I know a little bit about the uh, very long and controversial history of the, the concept of the soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'd say... Uh, Myers's concept of the subliminal self or Jung's concept of the psyche has a great deal in common with the traditional religious idea of a soul. Right. Uh even the great mystics, you know, talk about how they're lost in cosmic consciousness, but somehow some little spark of individuality remains. It's like sort of Ariadne's thread that they can follow back to everyday life when it's over. Right. Uh, so there's there's some kind of continuity there all the way to the bottom, so to speak. Yeah. Well, that, again, is, that is I, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, because that goes out. I mean, that that kind of supports everything else you've been talking about, and, and you're getting me to think about here. Okay. Good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. These these are big tough subjects, but I mean, it's really an exciting time where I think these topics are just going to come front and center scientifically. In fact, let me just throw in one additional thing, which I think is a really important recent development. Please. Uh, um, there's been some shocking 
uh, work in um, the study of psychedelics, uh, particularly from a group in the UK run led by a guy named Carhart Harris. Uh, he right. he did some imaging studies in which they injected psilocybin and followed what happened using fMRI. Uh, this was a much better way to do it than previous studies in which they had oral you know, ingestion of uh, psilocybin and then used uh, PET, which positron emission tomography, which integrates over a long time period. So they could follow it in much more uh, minute detail over a much shorter uh, period of the experience. And what came out of that study and has been, uh, uh, it's been echoed in a number of other recent studies, was a real shock to many neuroscientists because what everybody expected was the these intense experiences to be accompanied by intensification of neural activity in lots and lots of places. It was exactly the opposite. Uh, the intensity of the experience correlated with the deactivation and decoupling of major neural structures that are known to be associated with our everyday sense of being, you know, human beings anchored in the everyday world that we occupy. So that's a those are results that I regard as and Bernardo Castro regards as consistent with the filter interpretation and what they certainly scream for is more research of the same kind. In fact, right. we uh, rather expect to find that similar deactivation and decoupling is going to accompany other things of interest to us like mystical experiences. Uh, maybe uh, flights of genius, things of that sort, and right. strong psi phenomena. Right. Yeah, I actually tried to get Robin on the podcast once. He, he's actually the reason that uh, Raphael Miller joined us as a guest. Uh huh. Because of taking a look at uh, yeah the work he did with the fMRIs and the, and the psychedelics. So that is that is very interesting. I know that. Uh, the psychedelics always seem to come up, especially like with near-death experiences. I think a lot of the mm-hmm. the scientist folks try to explain off some of the near-death experiences as being similar to that from a psychedelic experience. Well, we might turn the tables on them empirically. <laughs> excellent, excellent. <laughs> well, we are uh, we're here at the hour, so I wanted to you know before we uh, break off here to see if there was anything else you wanted to bring up or or discuss and here in the last second or throw out there. Obviously, I will be putting links up to both of your books, you know, and encouraging people to get those. Is there anything else that uh, you'd like to share before we we break off here? Um, I should also send you a uh, uh, a URL for Dops's website so people can go look us up. Yes. Yes, I think I already have that, but if you want to send it to me just to make sure, that'd be great. All right. That concludes another edition of the Consciousness Podcast. Thanks again for listening. Please find us at Facebook at facebook.com slash the Consciousness Podcast at our Twitter handle at ConchCast. And don't forget to subscribe to our feed at theconsciousnesspodcast.com. Thank you for listening.